Hey, everybody, it's your girl, Tally, pop culture's chief cunty brand officer, telling it like it is so you don't have to on all things personal branding, pop culture, and life. Listen, I've poured my Topo Chico. I'm sufficiently caffeinated and ready to dive in. Let's get started. Okay, everybody, welcome to Raw Real Relevant. I am your host, Tally. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today. Her name is Brianna Kurtz. She's creatrix of OXX, which is a crypto community that encourages financial security stability for new mothers. Is that accurate, Brianna? Did I say that right? For all women, mothers and non-mothers alike. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So let's dive in to that even further. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came up with the idea and why OXX now? All right. So thank you for so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you about crypto and Web3 and all the things. I am, like you said, the creator of ZeroXX, which is a crypto and web three education hub and community for, like you said, for women. And we also focus a lot on underserved communities, which we can kind of unpack that as we go. I got into crypto in 2017, but it was really just like, I bought some tokens. I opened up a a wallet with a centralized exchange and I didn't really think much about it. And I didn't even look at those tokens for like years. And then in 2020, you know, it was the summer of COVID and we're all just sitting at home on our computers and needing something to do. And so I kind of fell down the crypto rabbit hole because that summer there was a big swell of energy into the crypto space again. And I just got super, super excited about it. And I was talking to all my girlfriends about it and all my family members and basically anyone who would just listen to me ramble on. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, you should teach this. You should teach this. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not going to teach this. You guys are crazy. And then one day I had the same conversation with three different people three times. And I was like, okay, this is not efficient. It's like one-on-one kind of delivery system. And what I, so then I kind of took their advice and I was like, okay, I need to develop like a one to many solution where we can get this information to more people in a much more efficient manner. And so that's when I developed kind of an online workshop about crypto and web three. And at first it just started with, you know, my friends, their friends, and a couple of people that followed me on social media and it really grew into really what it is today, which There is so much demand and so much excitement and just a growing community of women from all over the world that are excited about this topic. So cool. So I am very new to crypto myself, and I think I share a lot of, let's say, anxiety in this space Mm -hmm. because I think I just didn't know what it was or the inherent risk. So why is it so hard to understand and get into? Well, first of all, welcome. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get the anxiety. It is, I mean, look, I understand that crypto is often presented in confusing and overwhelming ways. And I mean, that is one of, part of my mission is to kind of demystify and undo that and speak to women in a way that they can really hear about the opportunities that exist in this space, because a lot of the time what I was hearing from my friends, you know, before I started this was that they often felt very intimidated, very talked over, 
people, men were mansplaining everything to them and they were just like completely turned off. So it's no wonder that it's so difficult to kind of get over that initial hump. What I like to say is that we are creating like a very, you know, welcoming front door for people to walk through where they feel heard, where they feel safe, where they feel supported and where they feel like they're met, right? Like no one's talking over you, talking down to you. We're really trying to meet people where they are and we understand that we do have a very global audience. So that's actually a big challenge for us because we have women who are, you know, just graduated from college and, you know, how we talk to them and the tools that are, what's the right word, compatible with them is very different than women in our community who are of retirement age and looking at different products that exist in this space. So we have to be able to adapt and be agile and to speak to women from all over the world of all ages and all backgrounds as well. So let's get into some basics. What is crypto? Crypto is a set of well, first of all, anything when you say when you say crypto, one thing that you should just know automatically off the top of your head is that it means we're talking about blockchain. So anything that exists in the crypto space occurs on top of a blockchain. And that's your first clue, right? When someone says like what is crypto, you know that that is happening. Assuming that nobody knows anything, right? Like mm-hmm. I have a I have a pretty large female audience that are freelancers that are very that are financially nervous. They want financial freedom, but they're nervous in this space. So what is blockchain? So blockchain is a new technology that was released in 2008 with the launch of Bitcoin. And it is a way to essentially store data and store information. And what it does is it chronologically catalogs data all the way going back to the beginning of time or the beginning of the record if you want to say that. And it organizes data in block. And when a block is filled, it goes on to the next block and then the next block and then the next block. And so it forms a chain of data. Now, most of the time when we say blockchain, we're thinking financial transactions and specifically financial transactions with cryptocurrencies. But I think it's really important for people to realize, and we talk about this in our workshops, that blockchain is used for so many things that have nothing to do with finance or with cryptocurrencies. For example, you see a lot of applications of blockchain to look at supply chain management. Like when did a product leave a warehouse and then what steps did it take? And you know, did it go off one truck and then it went onto an airplane and then it went into a store and then it was sold? You know, It can really track that information in a way that is transparent, meaning everyone can see, everyone who has access to this database or this blockchain can see what's happening. Number two, one of the inherent qualities of blockchain is you can't change it. So it's very resistant to corruption, meaning think about like if you had a spreadsheet that everybody was using in your organization, like everybody can see it, you're sharing it, you all have access to it, but Someone can change something and you go in tomorrow and you're like, wait, I could have sworn that something was there. And then now I have to go look at the track changes and and all these versions. But blockchain, you can't change. So again, it's very resistant to corruption, which is really, really important, especially when you're talking about finance, but also again, something like supply chain management. And then the other thing about blockchain is that it is, it can be centralized or decentralized. Centralized meaning that a very select group of people have visibility, and also control over the system. 
But when we're talking about cryptocurrencies specifically, they're much more decentralized, meaning one company or one CEO or one board of directors aren't controlling the levers of information and access. Rather, the system is decentralized into a global network of computers. And because of that, it's another level of like corruption resistance and also security. Because if you have a centralized point of control, right? Like a person could just flip the switch off. So think about it like this. This is the easiest way to think about it. If someone doesn't like something you post on Twitter or Instagram per se, if they can report you and that company like Twitter and Instagram could just say, okay, we're turning off that account because they have a centralized authority over that system. But in blockchain, nobody, most blockchains, when it comes to cryptocurrencies, no one has that control. So it's very resistant to censorship in a way. And also that, yeah, it just, it's the opposite of that centralized control. So that's another important piece of blockchain. Question for you. So you said depends on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. There's multiple, there's different types of blockchain. Is that dependent on the currency, the cryptocurrency? And then we'll loop it back to cryptocurrency. (laughs) Yes. So like I was saying before, I started to touch on different types of blockchains. So there's blockchains out there for supply chain management. There's blockchains out there that track endangered species. There's blockchains out there that track diamonds. Like for example, imagine you want to go buy a diamond and they say, oh yeah, this diamond's from conflict-free zone. Don't worry about it. But if you have supply chain management of that diamond from where it came from to getting onto your finger or your ear or whatever, like you can track that and it's it's anti-corrupt, like the blockchain, you can't corrupt it. You can't corrupt the data. So there's all these different types of blockchain, again, that have nothing to do with cryptocurrency. With cryptocurrency, there are multiple different types of blockchains. So think of it this way. I like to use Bitcoin and Ethereum because those are the two that most people know about. I like to think of them as kind of like the king and queen of crypto, where we are today. Bitcoin is its own blockchain with its own native currency called Bitcoin or BTC for if it's abbreviated. Ethereum is its own blockchain and it has its own native currency called Ethereum or Ether. Now, the best way to think of, to kind of help people start to grasp these concepts is I like to compare it to a nation state. So in crypto, we use a lot of analogies to help explain and illustrate concepts. Analogies are helpful, but they are not perfect. So if you think of Bitcoin as a country and Ethereum as a country, just like you could think of the US as a country and Mexico as a country, well, the US has dollars and Mexico has pesos, right? They're their own sovereign system with their own currency. You can think of Ethereum and Bitcoin as the same thing. They're each blockchains and they each have their own currency that you use to transact upon that blockchain or in that space. Okay. So why are people sketch on Bitcoin, but they're like, hey, Ethereum is more stable? Well, you know, that's going to depend who you ask. Like if you ask Bitcoin, people who love Bitcoin, you know, they're going to say, wait, whoa, 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 you know, and they're going to have criticisms of Ethereum. And so there are very tribal camps within the crypto space. Everyone in the crypto space isn't singing Kumbaya and loving each other. There's all all kinds of opinions and factions and uh, infighting that happens in the crypto space. And that's okay. It's, It's healthy criticism that makes the space stronger. So some things, some ways to differentiate between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that some people say that Bitcoin is the most energy intensive. So you've probably heard, you know, about the environmental impacts of crypto. Bitcoin is the most energy intensive 
the Ethereum is also quite energy intensive. It is making some changes to its system that will reduce its environmental impact or environmental energy consumption by 99%, and that's expected to happen this calendar year in 2022. Other people would say that on, on top of Ethereum, Ethereum kind of acts as like a base layer technology. And on top of that, you can build all these other applications like NFTs and games and decentralized finance applications. And so a lot of people think that Ethereum is a little bit more useful. And with Bitcoin, people would say that it has a different utility that Bitcoin is more of like a store of value and it has the chance potentially to kind of be, replace traditional currency and or become a new store of value asset like gold or sometimes like right. people use, you know, real estate. So they have different functions and that's okay. That's not a bad thing. I expect that other layer one blockchains, that's what we would call them. Bitcoin and Ethereum are these like layer one, these foundational layers that can be built on top of. They're all going to have their own different use cases and there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. So let's go back to the environment because I don't think a lot of people know that like, how do you get these coins? How do you create this digital currency in its mind? Do you want to speak into a little bit more of that? Yeah, it gets a little complicated, especially when I don't have the aids of like pictures and visuals. So I will do my very best just kind of like explaining it. So what happens? So when Bitcoin was released, there was a certain number of coins that were released on the market. And every year there's an emission cycle that releases more, more tokens. When you send a transaction to the network, like let's say I want to send you some Bitcoin. I send that transaction to the network. And somehow something has to happen on the back end in order for you to actually get that Bitcoin, right? To get that money that I want to send you. So what happens? Well, the transaction, I basically request for that transaction to go through by sending it to the network. It goes out to these nodes all over the world that you can think of them as running this, the same software program. And those nodes are the miners, and those miners are running very, very complex computational math systems on their computers to verify that my transaction is valid and to validate the transaction and add it to the blockchain. And so why would they do that? Out of the goodness of their hearts? No, not so much. Um, maybe some of them. But when they do this very complicated math that they need you know, hardware for that is very energy intensive, they get rewarded in Bitcoin or whatever currency they're of the whatever blockchain they are, are validating for. So um, that is how more coins get made. That's how transactions get processed. And that is also why it's so energy intensive. Okay. So what you're talking about is we're talking like actual computer, let's say databases, I guess, but more the energy is from what I understand, the energy is coming from the amount of energy it takes to actually mine this information. So any like producing light in uh, you know what I mean mm -hmm. in a city or producing all that stuff takes a lot. It requires a lot of energy. So to actually mine for Bitcoin takes a requires a lot of energy. That being said, can anybody mine for it? 
they just have to have the computers and then they multiply their computers and multiply their databases and then program those databases to actually aggregate basically. And it's almost like AI. Is that, is that right in a way? Like it, it's aggregating and learning, right? At the same time it, it, that it's mining. I wouldn't say it's aggregating. It is. So basically compounding it. It's running on consensus. Okay. And so the all, you know, the network has to agree that these transactions that people are sending, again, whether I want to send you something, whether I want to go buy an NFT or whatever it is, that these, everyone is agreeing that these transactions are verifiable, they're authentic, and that they can be added to the next block in the blockchain. If they don't agree, then you know that the transaction isn't going to go through or, or make it into the next block, if you will. So why it's so energy intensive, like you said, yeah, anyone can run a node for certain blockchains. You just have to have the right hardware and an internet connection. And that's another thing that's really powerful because, you know, imagine trying to like, imagine like walking up to Bank of America or, you know, another bank that you could name like ING or something and be like, hey, I want to participate in your digital ledger of your bank assets. The bank will be like, um, no, but like anybody can run a node for Ethereum or for Bitcoin or for other layer one blockchains. And so that's incredibly powerful as well. And that speaks to the decentralization element that I was talking about before. You know, if you want to solve these math problems the fastest so that you can get the rewards in the form of cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, it does require, require quite intensive hardware. You, you hear about these big, you know, um, mining operations and, and whatnot. But, but here's the other thing, like our traditional banking system, of course, takes energy. Like you said, it takes energy to keep the lights on. Like, it's not like our existing banking system is, um, you know, net zero or doesn't require some energy to maintain. And also I will say that I, you know, the crypto community is well aware of this problem, this environmental topic and conversation. And Ethereum, like I said, later this year is switching over to a new way of validating. And that is going to reduce their energy usage by 99%. And Bitcoin miners actually use about 76% of renewables as part of their energy source and 40% of Bitcoin's total power consumption comes from renewables already. And so, you know, the community is aware of this and it is going to take some time for it to get better, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's happening. Why are governments so scared of cryptocurrency? Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) well, well, just imagine, I mean, we actually didn't have to go too deep into it. Imagine a community of internet strangers from all around the world get together and they decide that something is valuable. Let's call that thing Bitcoin. And imagine that 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 becomes tradable and you can start paying your rent in Bitcoin. You can start paying for cars in Bitcoin. And then you go to a government and say, oh, no, thank you. We don't need your government issued fiat currency anymore. We, We have our own means of exchange. We have our own trade and our own financial system built on top of blockchain rails and you know, thank, no, thank you. We don't really need to participate in your top-down economy anymore. That's a huge threat. That is terrifying. So that's one part of it. What the government's going to tell you is that they want to protect people from all of the scams in crypto and to protect people from, you know, bad investments or who knows. And, and they're not wrong about that either. Like, look, 
I'm not going to lie and say that there's no scams in crypto. What are you talking about? Of course there are scams in crypto. They're everywhere. Everyone needs to be super, super careful. Like, And that is why I think education is so important so that if you do go out to the crypto space, that you're doing it in a very well-informed way and you know how to look out for scams, you know how to protect your wallets, you're taking all the right steps with security. And so those are kind of the two, two things when it comes to government, I think. Demystifying a little bit more crypto, what are DAOs and safety nets? Okay. DAOs are Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And they are like a new type of company, if you will. Um, We don't call them companies in the crypto space. We usually just call them DAOs or often call them protocols or projects. And yeah, they're a new kind of organization, organizational structure and coordinating mechanism. So again, like I was saying with decentralized entities before, there's no CEO, there's no board of directors, and there's no you know, very rigid hierarchical structure, right? You know, you have that like org chart. It's not like that. Decentralized means that anybody can participate. Now that doesn't mean that anybody can participate and do whatever they want and they can make money. It's like, no, you need to contribute to the, the ethos of the ecosystem that you want to belong to. You need to create value for the community that you want to earn from. Um, but if you do those things, you can basically contribute as much as you want. So imagine a traditional company, like let's say you want to work at like a newspaper, right? Because there's a lot of crypto media that does this. And you just show up one day and you're like, I'm going to write an article about this and then I'm going to print it. And then you're going to pay me this. And like, that would never happen. Right. But you can show up into like a crypto media community space, usually like a discord or a telegram group, you know, some type of chat and say, Hey, do you guys think that it would be helpful to our community to write an article about this? And then we can publish it here. And the community is going to say, yeah, I think that would be really great. Go for it. And then you just do it. And then you get rewarded for that. Sometimes you get, you know, a salary. Sometimes you get a token. Sometimes maybe it's an NFT. Who knows? I don't know. You know, the rewards span kind of the gamut, but um, it's much more accessible in that way when it comes to work and participation and being rewarded for contributing. Another way you can think of DAOs or DAOs as they're called is it's a collection of people that oversee resources or a treasury that is tied to a project. And that group of people are tasked with ensuring the long-term success of that project. And a lot of that has to do with the allocation of those funds and, and the management of that treasury. So what's a good example of that? Like, let's say you have a protocol that has we'll just keep numbers very, very easy. Let's say they have $100,000 in their treasury and their mission is to um, create the like Web3 version of Facebook or something. Who knows? Let's just use an example. And let's say there's two proposals that are put through right forward by the community. Like, okay, we want to build this new functionality where you can like, you know a new way to like, like comments or something. And then there's another proposal that's like, I want to build the thing that... Um, a new way you can add photos to like comment threads or something. And the community is going to say, okay, this really aligns with our mission. And like, let's proceed with that. And and then let's allocate funds to that endeavor. And then the other proposal, they might be like, no, this makes no sense. Like, why would we give our money to this thing that doesn't like fit with our, our project goals, our mission? 
and they're going to deny that request, right? So again, it's that connecting between project mission and the allocation of resources around it. And usually that is done by a DAO. Okay. So a DAO is kind of like an arbiter of what will go through and kind of what go through. However, these DAOs aren't hierarchical. They're decentralized, community-based and community-driven where anybody can have a say in it. And then there can be multiple DAOs, right? So you just kind of like Right. It's like you throw, you throw a project out to, I would say these communities and then the communities decide if they're viable or not. And those communities are DAOs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The communities are the DAO. And so I'm giving you like one functionality of a DAO. I mean, DAOs are extremely complex networks that can do all kinds of things. But at at its core, most DAOs are going to do kind of like what I just explained. They aren't going to be strict hierarchies, but there is going to be emergent hierarchy. There always is going to be hierarchy in systems. That it's just to to deny that is just to deny a reality. You know, so leaders do emerge, but it's not strict where it's like a leader emerges and then they become a demagogue and like they control everything. It's like sometimes the leader is this person because like, let's say there's a big marketing initiative. Well, the person who knows the most about marketing should be leading in that moment. But let's say that project phase is done and then there's a new product development phase that needs to happen. Well, then the the product development person is probably going to be the one that's leading. And simultaneously, there's all these other things going on within the community ecosystem where different leaders are emerging for different needs. And it's very like, it's, it's like an organism, like it's symbiotic. Then everything starts to kind of like, coalesce and come together. And it's very hard for us to imagine sometimes because it's such a new way of working that involves a lot of trust. Yeah. And it's not to say that DAOs are not necessarily better than um, traditional organizational structures, structures that we're used to. In some cases they are, in some cases they're not. And also that they, they're very complex and people, I think people a lot of time think of like, you know, crypto and web three as being this like the next phase of evolution of, of thinking of like, what are they called? Like startups or something. It's like the new version of a startup, but you know, DAOs are really messy. You know, when you have no leadership, sometimes you need a leader. And how do you work through that as a community? You know, sometimes you have a lot of infighting, like, I think we should do this. No, I think we should do this. Okay. How do you solve that? And so it's a really amazing opportunity for humans to come together and to learn how to coordinate better. Yeah, it sounds like it was, it's like a new way of doing things, how things used to be done in really old times <laughs> with tribes, almost yeah. like tribes of like, we're hunting this, we're going to hunt. And then like one person would be really good at sensing where mm-hmm. animals were. Another one might be a really great shot. Another one would be like, has a oh, fantastic memory and knows all of the ancient, you know, mm-hmm. chance for shit, but they're all in a tribe moving in the same direction together. Mm-hmm. So I it sounds yeah. it sounds really interesting. And I think it's it is more lateral in that way because it's to me it sounds like each individual is owning what they're great at for the greater whole. So like eventually in organizations we do need leadership and then from there it's like becomes a, a conversation as to what's best moving forward. Okay, so we've covered so much. This is, we've covered literally what crypto. So, okay. So going back to the original question, we have 
blockchain, we have these differences. So what is crypto exactly? So when people say crypto, basically they're usually referring to the entire space of blockchain-based technology. Again, if you say crypto, it's always built on top of a blockchain. That's like your first hint, your first clue. And it's often referred to in context of digital currencies, but also as the base layer technology, like the thing upon which things, other things can be built like NFTs, like Web3 applications, like decentralized finance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So let's touch briefly on NFTs. And then I want to talk about uh, a little bit of like where the, what the future holds and how people can really tap into it. So what are NFTs? Okay. NFTs are non-fungible tokens. And I know that that is like, okay, what is, what does that mean? Yeah. So fungible. Yeah. I know people say that and you're like, oh, you got it. Like, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So fungible just means that if I trade something with you, like if I give you something, you give me something back of equal value. So if I give you a dollar and you give me a dollar, those things are equal, right? If I give you, if I give you one Bitcoin and you give me one Bitcoin, they're equal. Now, if you give me a necklace and I give you a ring, they might not necessarily be of equal value, right? Or even if you have houses on the same block, like, okay, they're in the same community, they're in the same zip code, they're in the same school zone, but the two houses probably aren't equal for different reasons. One might have a little bit square footage, one might be two stories, the other one's one story, who knows why. They're not, you can't just trade them and have equal value on either side of the exchange. NFTs are non-fungible because if I give you, they're, they're unique digital assets, right? They're, there's only one of them. Right. So if I give you a board ape and you give me a crypto punk, like they're not, again, they're not equal in value on both sides of that exchange. So one way to think about this is um, in like the real world, I always like to try to use as many analogies as possible. It's like concert tickets. That's another good example, right? Okay. We both have tickets to the same concert, but you have a ticket in the front row and I have a ticket in the back row. They're not the same. So those are also like would be considered non fungible. So this idea of like fungibleness, like isn't new. So what are they? Well, I like to say that like what we've seen so far is NFTs 1.0, which are these like digital pictures, right? So like I mentioned, CryptoPunks, there's Bored Apes, there's, I mean, go on OpenSea.com and there's like a million different just photos of JPEGs of images and people trade them because they think they have value. That was kind of like the beginning of NFTs. What we're starting to see now is this new functionality of NFTs, which I personally call NFTs 2.0. And so now an NFT could be like a a token in a game. It could be like you buy this gift in a game. Like let's say you're, I'm not a gamer, but like let's say you're playing some video game and you want to like have this extra special skill. So you buy that skill in an NFT form and then like you attach it to your character and you go into that game and like play. And why is that special? Because now you own that skill and it doesn't just belong in the game. It doesn't belong to the game. They're just using it in the game. It's yours and you can take it anywhere in the world that you want to take it. And you can use it in different ecosystems, perhaps, if that functionality exists. The other thing we're seeing NFTs kind of increase, move beyond this like 1.0, just very static picture is for like access, right? So if you own this NFT, like let's say you have the special NFT, like let's say you launched an NFT and anyone in your community had that, well, that would give them access to maybe a, an event you're throwing. That would be their ticket 
or it would give them access to a private place on your website where only NFT members can hang out. Some other like VIP functionality, right? So they're more than just static images. They're almost like badges or tickets or they give access and they also can denote, you know, who the membership in a way. Right. So I can't imagine how this type of NFT, NFT 2.0 won't be a very significant part of corporations in the future. I look at something like sports events. Imagine you have a ticket. That ticket is an NFT and you get access to the dugout or right. Like that ticket This particular NFT, depending on the access, right, is giving you basically a meet and greet with so-and-so, an owner's box. But you also have the NFT as as memorabilia, which Mm -hmm. the, let's say for the sake of the 49ers, could actually add more value onto that particular NFT at any time, right? Mm -hmm. So what's what's the difference between, like, how do things get minted? What is this? Is this like, what is that? (laughs) So I want to add on to one more thing you just said, though, too, that's really important. So we just described what like a ticket could be like, right? Yeah. And the community leaders could add on benefits at any time. But how is that different than like, if you were just like a seasoned ticket holder to the 49ers? right? They could do that. They could give you access to the dugout. They could give you special t-shirts. They could. So how is an NFT different than that? And this is what is important. It's about ownership because the distributing body was originally the one making all the money. Like let's say the 49ers did like a season pass that gave you all these extra perks, but they got all the money. But now with an NFT, I, as the holder of the NFT, not only do I have all this accessibility, but now it's also an asset, which means if I want to sell it, let's say there's only a thousand in existence, which makes them rare. And if I want to sell it on the secondary market, who gets that money? It's not the 49ers. It's me. Why? Because I own it. And that's what an NFT does. It gives me more power. It's like a baseball card, basically. And like kind of... Baseball cards are a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So certain levels when they were first printed would be, let's say very limited. So when you mm-hmm. trade on baseball cards, they are, con- is that how you would can be, is that when something is considered mint, very limited in availability? No. So minting just means like created. <laughs> it's just oh, like a, okay. This is a funny, so like, this is like a sweet name for yeah, created. Okay. It's so imagine like someone like, like a first favorite. edition. Yeah. Well, no, it's like, imagine like your favorite, um, like, comic book artist or something. They're like, okay, I'm going to make a thousand NFTs and you can mint them. How to explain? Like you go to this website and you pay some fee. It could be very small. It could be very large to, for them to like be created on the blockchain in a way. And then you, and you're also in the process of doing that, buying it. And then it goes into your wallet and now it's yours. But the first time that that happens, that's the minting process. But now if I own that NFT and then I sell it to you, you're not minting it from me. You're just buying it from me. Right. Got it. So I just think of minting as creation. So people are more, there's certain level of people who are interested in the minting process because it is the first, first. it's baseline. Yeah, exactly. And with that comes, I mean, that's a huge, that's like, that was a very long conversation we can get into, but like a lot of times... Yeah. If you're the first you have, I mean, there's just so many ways to think about it. It's like, yes, that means that you could be a first adopter and that might give you 
more special access or special memberships or special prizes, who knows. And if you mint, it's usually at the lowest price and prices often, but definitely not all the time, go up from there. And so that's another reason people like to mint is because they can then turn around and sell it at a profit. Right. Which is how we're getting so many 13-year-old millionaires Mm -hmm. trading on OpenSea. So I feel like we could do a whole other 2.0 on second part on NFTs alone, but coming back to how we as women can get started, what's like our crypto starter kit? I think that... First, we have to open a wallet, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I always start, like, I'm, I'm super like cautious. I'm like the mom in the group where I'm like, okay, everybody let's learn about security. Like, I know it's not sexy and I know no one wants to do it. I get it. It's like, I resist it as well, but like, there's really, to me, that's like where you have to start is like really understanding your options and the security and things that you need to do. Because even when you're setting up a wallet, some really important things happen that if you don't know what you're, what they are, you could like, lose the passwords and da, 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 da. And if that happens, you could potentially lose access to your assets in that wallet forever. So for me, it's all about security first. Then in, in finding an educator to guide you like that, like whether it's zero XX, you know, with me or anybody, you know, that you feel is trustworthy and reputable. That's the way I think people should be brought into this space with their hand held and supported and guided. But if you want to go it on your own, where everybody starts, I don't care who you are or where you are in the world, where everybody starts is opening up a centralized exchange account or wallet. So that is your Gemini's, your Coinbase's, Binance, Kraken, all of those. We've heard these names. That's where you start. And why do you start there? Because that's how you turn regular money, whether it's dollars, pesos, euros, whatever, into crypto. And from there, you can transfer that crypto out of your centralized, for example, Coinbase wallet and into a blockchain-based decentralized wallet or on-chain wallet, like MetaMask is the most popular that people know about. But that's a second step. That first step is always opening up a centralized exchange wallet. And when you do that, everybody has to KYC, which means know your customer, which basically just means you have to prove your identity. You're going to have to give your name and your phone number and a picture of your passport or your driver's license or something. And this is how, you know, we started to see the regulation come in. I think God, like six years ago, seven years ago, that wasn't a thing, but now that's like across the board. That's what you, what you have to do. Yeah. Okay. So is there a difference between, so a lot of people from the United States, these young kids are going down to Central America, like the Panama's, Mm. like the Mexico's, and they're opening up crypto wallets that are not in the United States because the United Mm -hmm. States is Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. hardcore on, Mm -hmm. they want to regulate everything, right? This is what the the U.S. does. So there's, I, when I was in Central America, there was just crypto kids everywhere, like El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama's enormous. You could open up a Panama Corp with $5,000 and get residency like overnight. This was like three Mm. years ago. Now they've changed that, but Is there, do you foresee cryptocurrency, blockchain, being able to transfer your money, you know, into wallets and then into a MetaMask, which is the in-between, right? Before it goes somewhere else being regulated. Yeah. I mean, a regulation is inevitable. I hope that we have good regulation. I mean that, and and there's nothing wrong with some regulation. I, I think 
no, obviously some people are going to disagree with me on this, but like, you know, some regulation is, is good. It, it gets, it regulations, again, it's own special topic that we can have a whole conversation about. Yeah. The tricky part about central, uh, excuse me, regulation is that decentralized element, right? And this applies to decentralized wallets, decentralized blockchains, decentralized DAOs, you know, it's like, how do you regulate something where there's no person in charge? You know, there's no, like, who do you sue if something goes wrong? There's no CEO. There's no board of directors. Like, it's a very complicated legal uh, development that is, like, literally being uh, decided, like, as we speak. Do I see regulation coming into that point? I mean, it's really tricky. Like, were centralized exchanges? Absolutely. Because, again, remember that because they're centralized, companies like Gemini, companies like Coinbase, there are CEOs of those companies, there are board directors, and most of them are publicly traded, which means that they are, in the U.S. at least, absolutely subject to all securities laws. And the government can absolutely go in there if they have cause, if they have warrants, and say, shut it down. And we saw versions of this in Canada with, with recent protests. We've seen versions of this with the Russian sanctions. Block, you know, they could say block access to this account, to this account, to this account. It gets a lot harder for the government to turn off or to block access to decentralized wallets like MetaMask. It is not impossible. It's much harder, though. Okay. So for the audience that is listening, they haven't bought crypto yet. They're very nervous. They have a thousand dollars. What cryptocurrencies do they invest in? After, let's say they they've opened up a Kraken wallet, yeah. right? Like okay. or a Coinbase wallet. They got that far, and now they're like, okay, I'm going to actually buy. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a whole other a caveat, which is gas prices, which mm-hmm. affects mm-hmm. the currency. And maybe we can speak very briefly mm-hmm. into that. Um, like, how do currencies get evaluated, and what does gas have to do with it? And then, mm-hmm. if I had a thousand dollars, like what do you suggest buying? And if you don't want to give a recommendation, also totally fine. I'll just give mine. (laughs) I'll say, this is what I I bought. (laughs) Yeah. I can't legally suggest that anyone buy a specific currency. I'm not a lawyer or an accountant. And so, and I also can't sleep well at night. Like for instance, like what if I say, go buy this amazing currency. And then tomorrow, like something horrible happens and everyone loses their money. Like I wouldn't be able to like sleep well at night. So I can't legally say that. Um, but what I can say is if you are, if you have a thousand dollars and you're looking to get into crypto, look at what projects have been around the most, uh, been around the longest, I should say, look at the projects that have had some, some battle wounds and they've come out, come out on the other side and gotten stronger because of it. Look at the projects that have very reputable developers and co-founders or, or founders or leaders in the community. What other projects have they worked on? Did those projects fail? Were there hacks? Were there, did tokens go missing? Like, was there anything sketchy? Get into, get on crypto Twitter and ask, get into the, go to the website and join their discord community and ask questions and, you know, research. So in crypto, it's called DYOR. I mean, do your own research. That's what I would suggest people doing before buying research, research, research. I would, I'm happy to speak on uh, gas. So gas is the fee on the Ethereum network of what it's going to cost to make a transaction. And there's always fees, right? We're used to fees in banking. If I want to transfer something from a Bank of America account to a Capital One account, you know, there's like a 3% fee or whatever it is. I don't, I don't remember. I haven't done that in a long time, but there's always a fee in centralized exchanges like a Gemini or Coinbase. Usually the fee is based, it's a percentage based on the amount of the transaction. 
on in blockchain networks, the fees are usually based on the traffic on the network. So if it's a really busy time of day, or there's just a lot of things happening on the blockchain, the fees are going to be higher. Why is that? It's because people are fighting for block space. Like everybody wants their transaction, whether they're buying an NFT or some token to get in on the next block that's going to be added to the blockchain. And so that competition puts a pre- puts pressure on the miners, puts pressure on price. And so the gas fees are going to be higher. But if it's like a Think of traffic in LA. Like if it's like a Sunday morning. Literally just going to say that. Yeah. And there's less congestion, then the gas fees are going to be lower. Or scalp tickets, right? Or like scalp Mm -hmm. tickets. Like Mm -hmm. people, there's everything sold out, but there's six available, but you have to pay nine. You know what I mean? I want that seat. You have to pay nine X on this ticket. Exactly. Got it. The competition. And also like there are, you know, there are a lot of solutions to this problem of fees because as crypto has gotten more popular, the fees have only gone up because there's more competition because there's more people fighting for block space. But new blockchains, newer blockchains, like maybe you've heard of Solana or Avalanche or Celo, the fees are much reduced because of the validation mechanisms of those blockchains. They're slightly different than proof of work, which is the mining of Bitcoin like we talked about, which make them faster and cheaper. On Ethereum, the solution is to build something called a layer two. So you think of Ethereum as layer one. And to solve this scalability problem of it being slow and congested and also expensive, they're adding on this like other layer where the transactions can take place at a much faster, cheaper, uh, in a much, much faster and cheaper way. Think of it this way. We all have, you know, uh, usually like an iPhone or an Android. And on my iPhone, what's the operating system? It's iOS, right? But then there's my apps. I've got my food delivery apps and my car sharing apps and my social media apps. And those all operate on a diff on the top layer, like above the iOS. So it's like iOS is like the base layer, like Ethereum. And on top of that, there's all these applications. And on that level of applications is where things get cheaper and faster. Perfect. Amazing. And it's called layer two. <laughs> layer two blockchain applications. Yeah, you could that sound yeah, that works. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is a very it's super apropos. It's a lot to take in. I hope everyone gets a lot out of this conversation with them when this launches. But how can people find you? How can they learn from you? Give us all your deets before we wrap up. Absolutely. So you can, we're launching our new website soon. So maybe by the time this episode airs, it's 0xx.io. So it's like the number zero. Um, It's not spelled out. And then the best way to find us is on Instagram. So it's 0xxcrypto. And that is where, that's the best place to find us. And we'll be sharing like all of our, all the things there. Amazing. So um, I'll have all of this detailed in the, the episode notes. I am going to do a fire round really quickly so people can get to know you a little bit better and then we will call it. Okay. What's one thing people get wrong about you? Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought I would be like really good at these quick cards. Um, <laughs> wrong about me. I have no idea that I'm, um, I don't know that I can be really like bitchy and grumpy, but really I'm just like shy and introverted. 
<laughs> Amazing. What's something people would be surprised to learn is in your fridge? Hmm. I have like eight different types of kimchi in my fridge. I don't know why. That's amazing. What's a thought pattern you have that you wish you didn't? Mm, I think like scaffolding is like, you know, like when something happens and then you just like start like adding on to like the story and it just, before you know it, you're like in this place, you're like, wait a second. And that didn't happen. Like my mind has just like created this like story that it wants to express about something, get mad about something or like defend something. But it's like, then you realize like you're just building mental scaffolding and you can just like deconstruct all of that and free yourself of all of that, uh, mental energetic anguish. How do you handle that when you feel like when you know you're in a, what do you call it? Scaffolding. Mm -hmm. When you know you're in that moment, how do you actually handle that or address it? I, well, if I'm lucky enough, I I realize that I'm doing it. And then I just try to like zoom out and actually look at it as if it was like scaffolding on the side of a building and like imagine myself like climbing down and like walking away from it. Amazing. What is a ritual that you have that you refuse to give up? Hmm. (laughs) So I really love like ritualizing the things that you do every day that seem simple. Like, so like brushing your teeth, like it's something we do every day, but we don't think of it as a ritual or like my skincare, like something I do every day. And I mean, so it's not like one of the rituals, like pulling cards or journaling or, you know, I new moons are very sacred to me, but I like ritualizing, like why not ritualize the things that you're, you know, you're going to do at least once a day, like brushing your teeth and your skincare. And they're just like moments of self-love. I love that. I totally agree. What is your spiritual money practice? Mm not shopping when I feel like wanting to shop all the time. <laughs> like, I'm like shopping. <laughs> I grew up shopping. I was like, it, it totally is like chocolate and shopping. Forget it. I'm such a girl like that. Mm. Advice for your younger self. <sighs> Don't spend so much time worrying and have more fun. Amazing. And what is next for you? Oh my gosh. So much, especially with zero XX, we're launching all kinds of fun things, which you can obviously find out about on our website and growing our community and connecting more. I'm going to be doing a lot of events. I'm going to some industry events in New York and Lisbon this summer. So, and my, my son, who is about a year and a half, I'm just being with him as much as I possibly can. Amazing. It's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate you. If you have reached the end of this episode, you're basically a legend. And I want to thank you so much in advance for leaving the most epic review ever. Really appreciate it. Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe for more fun.